we have been discussing the Sabhasava Sutta. This is the discourse called Un, called All the Taints, which is the second discourse in the Machimanikaya. And in this Sutta, the Buddha announces that he's going to teach the way to restrain and abandon all of the asavas. The asavas, as I explained last time, are what we might call the most basic or most primordial defilements at the base of samsara, at the base of the process of rebirth, which according to the Buddha has been going on through beginningless time. And the texts mention, the older texts mention three asavas, three primordial taints. One is kamasava, the taint of sensuality, sensual desire. Then there is bhavasava, the taint of craving for existence the desire for the attachment to one's own individual existence and desire for continued existence in new forms after death. And avijasava, which is the taint of ignorance, not understanding the true nature of things, a kind of beginningless blindness to the real nature of our own existence, to the real nature of phenomena. Then the later texts, even the Abhidhamma commentaries, add a fourth asava. This is Ditti asava, or Dittasava, the taint of views, holding to speculative views, to wrong views, views which, you could say almost ironically, which blind us from seeing things as they really are, sort of limited standpoints, opinions, doctrines that one holds to and that prevent one from seeing the true nature of Dhammas, true nature of phenomena. And so, from one angle, the goal or aim of the Buddha's teaching is liberation from the taints, or the destruction of the taints. This is called asavakaya, the destruction of the taints. I should mention that the word taint, I'm just reviewing what I said last time since we had two weeks before the last class, before the previous class. The, asava, the word asava comes from a root which means to flow, flowing. Then the prefix a could signify either flowing in or flowing out. So the asafas are these basic defilements at the very root of the mind, the very bottom of the mind, 
which we can see as flowing into the mind from their deep subterranean mode of, of being. And then when they flow into the mind, then they flow out through all of the sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and thought. And they flow out of the sense faculties towards these, the sense objects, towards things seen, heard, sense, smelt seen, heard, smelt, tasted, touched, and thought. The commentary says also that they're called asapas because they flow through all of the planes of existence, from the lowest planes, the realms, the hell realms, the animal realm, the ghost realm, all the ways up to the highest plane in the formless realm. And because it is these basic primordial defilements that lie at the base of samsara, the whole aim of the Buddha's teaching in showing the way to full liberation to Nibbana is to point out how to overcome the taints. And the process of overcoming the taints involves two aspects. One is restraining them. This is called sangvara, preventing them from becoming active, become it, preventing them from flowing into the mind, obsessing the mind, dominating the mind, controlling the mind. And then certain disciplines taught by the Buddha have the purpose of helping us to restrain the asapas, to keep them under control. But it's not enough just to restrain them and control them, because as long as they exist, even at the subliminal level, at the latent level, they can rise up again. So what's needed beyond restraint is eradication or abandonment. And that is to be accomplished by other methods of training. So we have these two aspects or two stages of removing the pain. And so by employing these two methods of training, then one reaches eventually asavakaya, which is the destruction of the taints, the complete irreversible destruction so that these defilements can never arise again, so that they don't exist anymore in the mind. And the mind which is fully released from the taints, that is the liberated mind, the fully liberated mind. And one who has reached that complete liberation of mind, that is the Arahant the worthy one, the perfect one in the early Buddha's teaching. And so a word which is used to describe the Arahant, almost a synonym, is kīnāsava, which means one who has destroyed the thing. Kīnāsava, 
this is a compound kina Sanskrit kshina that means destroyed and the asavas are the taints so one for whom the taints are destroyed is a keen asava that is a liberated one the arahant the taint destroyer okay in the first okay now the Buddha in this particular sutta gives special emphasis in this process of overcoming the taints he gives special emphasis to the role of attention what is called manasikara that is how we attend to the things that come within range of our experience how we reflect and consider things and the Buddha distinguishes very precisely between two types of attention. There is what is called a yoniso manasikara, which means, you can say, careless attention, superficial attention shallow attention okay, this is the kind of attention which doesn't consider things correctly, properly um, accurately but rather it just grasps upon superficial features of objects, of things and then on the basis of the superficial attention then we build up thought constructions or to use a more technical term there's a Pali word papancha which means proliferation do you have that in singulars also? in singular language papancha okay, it's like it's a conceptual elaboration or conceptual proliferation mental proliferation building up ideas, impressions, notions, views, opinions, theories which are not grounded in reality but just arise because we look at things superficially in a shallow way and then engage in imagination constructive, we call it thought construction the opposite of this is yoniso manasikara. Yoniso manasikara is the mode of attention, of reflection, of consideration, which considers things accurately, wisely, deeply, thoroughly, carefully. And when one considers things accurately and thoroughly, then there's no opportunity for this papancha, conceptual elaborations, to take place. And when the conceptual elaborations are held in check, then the asafas, the taints, are kept restrained.
Now the Buddha teaches that these two types of attention are related causally to the emergence and the activation of the asavas. When we attend to things with ayoniso attention, with shallow or superficial attention, then the asavas are activated and flow into the mind and thrump through from the mind they govern or they generate um, unwholesome thoughts, feelings and they motivate unwholesome actions. But through wise attention, yoniso manasikara, considering things carefully, deeply, thoroughly, then the asapas are kept in check and are not able to flow into the mind. Okay, now the Buddha in the first section of the sutta, he's going, at the beginning he announces that he will teach seven ways of restraining the asavas. Or actually he says that there are seven ways of abandoning the asavas. Pains to be abandoned by seeing, by restraining, by using, by enduring, by avoiding, by removing, by developing. And in the first, as I explained last time, of these seven methods, the first and the seventh, the last, are the methods which really cut off the asavas, which eradicate them. The other five, the middle five, are methods for controlling them, for restraining them. And so the Buddha begins by proposing to teach the taints to be abandoned by seeing. Here the Pali word is dasana, dashana, which means really seeing the Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths, seeing Nibbana with the attainment of stream entry or Sotapati. But the Buddha doesn't immediately begin by showing how this process of seeing is arrived at, but instead he sort of shows the negative side of the picture by explaining how the ordinary worldling the unenlightened person becomes entangled in his wrong views, his speculative views, because of unwise attention. That was a section that I explained last week. Um, the, basically, the process moves from unwise attention which causes the taints to flow in the mind. When the taints flow into the mind, then the mind gives rise to various doubts or perplexity. Then building upon this doubt or perplexity in order to escape the discomfort from this, in order to escape the discomfort of perplexity, the worldling grasps upon a wrong view, 
in which he tries to establish some kind of identity for the self to find some some way of defining who he truly is what he truly is and if this person the Buddha says here we're now at the end of section 8 fettered by the fetter of views the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth aging and death from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair he is not freed from suffering I think okay that's I think where we stopped last time okay now we will continue taking the positive side in which the Buddha will explain how the noble disciple practices to overcome the taint. Okay, here the Buddha begins by describing the noble disciple. He is one who has regard or esteem for the noble ones, the Aryans, for the Buddhas and the Arahants. One who is skilled and disciplined in their Dhamma. That is one who is learned the Dhamma, familiar with the Dhamma, and has trained in it, who is engaged in developing the practice. Then who has regard for the Sappurisa, the true persons, the ones, the superior persons. That's the same as the Aryans. Okay, this person, the Buddha says, understands what things are fit for attention, and what things are unfit for attention. And since that is so, he does not attend to those things unfit attention, and he attends to those things that are fit for attention. Okay, what are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to? They are those things such that when he attends to them, the arisen pain of sensual desire craving for existence and ignorance arise in him if they haven't yet arisen or become stronger if they've already arisen. Okay, and what are the things fit for attention that he attends to? Those things that when one attends to them the unarisen taints do not arise and the arisen taints diminish and are abandoned. And as the commentary explains quite correctly, it says that there's not an actual, there need not be an actual difference in the things to which one should not attend and the things to which one should attend. It's rather the real difference is in the mode of attention, the way of attention, the take one or the perspective one brings to them. So I think last time I mentioned the example that <laughs> an ordinary person might see, for example, a dance show and he thinks this is something very exciting, very enticing, and he wants to join in and to <laughs> participate. But the wise person will look at this dance show and feel nibita, that is a kind of disenchantment with it, a turning away, even a 
revulsion towards it, since he realizes that this dance show is just something which is intoxicating and um, a basis for the defilement to arise. Or the ordinary person will <laughs> be watching a boxing match and seeing these people fighting, hitting each other, and think, wow, that's real exciting, or he'll be rooting for his favorite. Knock him out, hit him, punch him, <laughs> get him hard. <laughs> and so for this person, the <laughs> the chelases, the defilements will arise and become stronger. Whereas if a noble disciple of watches sees the boxing match, then he's wondering, how could human beings do that to, to each other? How could they be hitting each other? And for them he will feel compassion for, for both parties in the fight. Okay, so the key is not the objects themselves, but the way one attends to them. So if one attends to things, here the commentary brings in the standard definition of unwise attention and wise attention. If one attends to things as permanent, one thinks everything is going to last forever, then Okay, that's an unwise attention. If one thinks or attends to things which are really suffering or bases of suffering as being pleasurable, then these asavas will arise. If one thinks of things which are really impure or unattractive, here the usual example given is the physical body. If one thinks of that as attractive, then the defilements will arise. And if one thinks of the anything in the five aggregates, anything in the body and mind as being myself, what I truly am, then the defilements will arise and become strong. But if one attends to these correctly, as they really are, as impermanent, as unpleasurable basis for suffering as unattractive and as non-self then there's no scope for the asavas to arise. Okay, now in the next paragraph the Buddha is going to see how the noble disciple by attending to things wisely and correctly penetrates the Four Noble Truths and reaches stream entry. Here the teaching is very, very compressed since the Buddha doesn't bring in the usual complete explanation of the training, but it just has this all compressed and packaged together under the label of wise attention. So he says, he attends wisely, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So this is actually describing the penetration of the Four Noble Truths by 
a noble disciple who is reaching the stage of stream entry. Okay, so now to sort of go back to the beginning of this training, in order to reach the stage, the disciple has to begin, okay, with sadha, with faith, confidence in the Buddha as the supreme teacher, the Dhamma as the doctrine or the teaching, and in the Aryan subs, the Arya Sangha, the community of noble ones. On this basis of this faith and trust in the three refuges, he'll undertake sila, or the practice of morality or virtue. And here the Buddha will not doesn't formulate the teaching exclusively by way of monks, so we can suppose even for a lay disciple will undertake the panchasila, the five precepts to abstain from stealing, from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and intoxicants. On the basis of this moral observance, you will undertake some training in concentration. It's my own belief on the basis of the suttas that to reach stream entry, it's not necessary to attain the jhanas. But one needs just sufficient power of concentration to be able to attend to things with insight, to gain insight knowledge. So once the mind is able to focus steadily upon an object, then one can go into the practice of insight through the four contemplations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness. One takes a particular contemplation and uses it to sort of tune into one's experience, <coughs> then when the mind is focused on one's experience, one observes the body, feelings, mind states, various mental phenomena, until one is able to see the three characteristics of all phenomena, that they're all impermanent, all unsatisfactory or bound up with suffering, and that they are all anatta, not to be taken as I, mine, or myself. As one goes on contemplating the three characteristics, then the insight grows sharper and sharper, deeper and deeper, until one is able to see the three characteristics very clearly, so that phenomena are always seem to be arising, passing away with even incredible rapidity. And one realizes that there is nothing at all to be taken as a permanent, lasting, or stable self within these five aggregates. Okay, at a certain point the insight reaches a level which is called in the system of the commentary Sankarupeka-jnana, which means the knowledge with the equanimity towards all formations, where the mind becomes perfectly balanced, equanimous, and is observing the three characteristics in all phenomena that arise and pass away. Then 
at a certain point when the faculties become very sharp and all of the person's paramis, previous perfections, are mature, then the mind turns away from all sankharas, all formations, all conditioned phenomena, and penetrates the unconditioned element, that is nibbana. It's a complete turning away from the world of conditioned formations, and it's as if the mind is launching itself upon or piercing through the unconditioned, that which is not born from causes and conditions, that which is, you say, permanent, stable, not subject to change, that which is outside the whole round of birth, decay, and death, outside Sankara. Just momentarily, there comes this breakthrough to Nibbana, and that is called the stage of Dasana, which means seeing, because for the first time the mind is seeing Nibbana, and when it sees Nibbana, it also sees simultaneously all four noble truths up to the point up to the time that point is reached one can have some understanding some insight into the no truth of suffering because one is when one is practicing insight meditation one sees that the five aggregates everything in the body and mind are impermanent unsatisfactory insubstantial and one could understand these five aggregates are really suffering, not satisfactory. And one can have some understanding or insight into how craving causes suffering to arise. But one doesn't yet really penetrate and understand what is the cessation of suffering. And one doesn't know that this path one is following is the way to the cessation of suffering. This one can just, one has some confidence because one can see as one practices the path that one experiences more peace and happiness. And one knows that as craving diminishes, one feels happier, more content. But one doesn't yet really know what is the cessation of suffering? And one doesn't yet really know that this path will lead to the cessation of suffering. It's like, to give in a, in a simile, it's like one is climbing a mountain, maybe one is in a smog-covered <laughs> region, a smoggy region, with a lot of industrial pollution, waste, a lot of noise, a lot of banging and clanging of heavy machinery, a lot of heavy traffic, and the air is very foul. And, 
and then one is climbing a mountain, hoping to get to the other side of the mountain and reach a very pure country, beautiful country, where the air is clean, unpolluted, where there's clean water, and it stretches out to the distant horizon, it's sparsely populated, and people are living very happily and peacefully. There are not even, maybe just very few roads. People travel about by, <laughs> by bicycle, and everybody is very happy, contented in that country. Okay, as one is going up, it's becoming, climbing the mountain, it's becoming quieter and quieter. The air is getting clearer, cooler, more pleasant to breathe. But one doesn't really know yet that there's this beautiful land on the other side of the mountain. But one comes to a certain, let's say, an opening in the mountain, not yet at the top, but a certain opening where suddenly one could see what lies on the other side of the mountain and one sees that beautiful country there. And now one knows that the country is there, but as you take the path up the mountain, it makes a turn because the mountain is too steep to go directly, then you don't see that beautiful country anymore. But you know you're going in the right direction now, and you know that when you get to the top of the mountain and descend, that you'll be in that beautiful country. So this is what happens with the when one penetrates Nibbana, the unconditioned, by reaching the what's called the Sotapati Magga, the path of stream entry, one sees the deathless element and one knows now that there is a liberation from birth, old age and death, but one is, isn't yet able to enter it fully. Sort of like the mountain, the path turns around, the scene, the view is cut off, but one is now confident, one is moving in the direction, and you know that this path is leading to the beautiful country. Okay, so when one sees Nibbana, the cessation of suffering, at that moment, it is said, one penetrates all four noble truths simultaneously. Because when one sees the deathless element, the unconditioned, then one looks back at everything conditioned and one sees, one understands that is really suffering. It's like the man coming from the polluted piece, uh, the polluted city. Maybe when he's living in the city, he thinks, what's wrong with this land? Because one is living there, one never knows it's polluted. <laughs> it's like people living even maybe in Calcutta or Delhi or even Colombo nowadays. You tell them that the city is polluted. They say, what are you talking about? It's nothing wrong with this place. Because they never get outside of it, so they have nothing to compare it with. Okay, but when the, the man gets to the ridge above the mountain and sees the beautiful country, then he looks back and sees 
city that he's emerging from and then he realizes, wow, that's real, <laughs> a real ordeal. How could people live in that city and breathe that terrible polluted air all the time and drink the polluted water? And how can they um, tolerate all of that noise and heavy traffic? So then, okay, when he looks back, then he realizes living in that city, that is really suffering. This is like the man who sees Nibbana and then looks back at these five aggregates and thinks to be born, then, okay, you grow old, you grow up, maybe you think that's pleasant, but then he starts thinking of all of the stress and turmoil of maybe adolescence, the problems of becoming a mature adult, all of the hustle and bustle of working to support oneself, then the misery of disease, of illness, of growing old and dying, and going through that over and over again through the beginningless time. So he realizes that's really dukkha, really suffering. Then he by penetrating Nibbana, he understands that what causes that suffering, what keeps this whole process of rebirth moving from life to life, is nothing but one's own craving and ignorance, one's own blind thirst for pleasures of the senses, for continued individual existence, and one's ignorance of the real nature of this individual existence. So he sees that craving and ignorance working together, that is the real origin of suffering. Then now since he's seeing Nibbana for the first time, he realizes this is the real cessation of suffering. And since he has reached this momentary experience of Nibbana by following and practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, then he's aware that this is the path to the cessation of suffering, and if I continue along this path to its full perfection by development, then I will live permanently in that liberation of mind that this path culminates in. And so now he sees all Four Noble Truths simultaneously. This is called, in the commentaries, it's called simultaneous penetration. I think it's Ekapati Veda, one penetration of Four Truths. And simultaneously with this first breakthrough to the unconditioned, to Nibbana, the lowest three fetters are cut off. As you know, the Buddha speaks of ten fetters which keep living beings in bondage to samsara. The first three fetters are called, here they're mentioned, listed, the text says, when he attends wisely in this way, three fetters are abandoned in him. 
personality view, doubt, and adherence to rules and observances. In Pali, these are called Sakaya Ditti, Vichikicha, and Sila Bhakta Paramatma. Okay, personality view really means the view <coughs> of a self in regard to these five aggregates. A view which identifies one or another of the five aggregates as a self, or which in some way supposes that there is a self existing in relation to these five aggregates. And so when when one is practicing insight meditation, then one is considering the five aggregates as being anatta, non-self. One contemplates each of the aggregates, bodily form, feeling, perceptions, mental volitions, or volitional formations, and consciousness. One sees that each of these five aggregates arises and passes away and so none of these five aggregates can be taken as self. But in the stage of insight the actual tendency to adopt a view of self is not yet not yet abandoned, not yet destroyed. If the person even though he's very advanced in insight contemplation, but maybe something might happen, the person might lose confidence in the Buddha Dhamma, something might happen, and maybe he comes under the influence of a very convincing, persuasive preacher of some religious religion or philosophy which teaches that there is a permanent self, and so then the person might give up the view of anatta and adopt this teaching which affirms the existence of a real self. But when one reaches the stage of stream entry, then one penetrates completely the selfless nature of all phenomena, not yet as a kind of consideration going from one to another, but somehow the seeing of the deathless element or nibbana just uproots any tendency to a, a view which affirms the existence of a self in relation to the five aggregates. Okay, so with this penetration, the fetter of personality view or view of self is completely cut off. Then, because one has now seen the truth of the Dhamma, seen it for oneself directly, then one no longer has any doubt. No doubt that the Buddha is the fully enlightened one. Because now one has seen the same truth that the Buddha himself has been teaching that the Buddha himself has seen. And so one has shared the Buddha's own realization of truth, at least partly, fractionally, and so one understands that the Buddha teaches this Dhamma 
through his own enlightenment, through his own realization. One no longer has any doubt about the Dhamma because one has seen the truth of the teaching for oneself. One no longer has any doubt about the Sangha, and not by Sangha we mean here not the monastic order, <laughs> but the Aryan Sangha, the community of noble ones who have seen the truth of the teaching for themselves, because one now has become a member of the Aryan Sangha. Just by seeing these four noble truths, one becomes an Aryan Pugala, a noble person. And so one has now entered the community of noble ones, and one has complete confidence that these, this community of the noble ones are practicing the way that will lead to Nibbana. And then one cuts off the fetter of adherence to Silabhatta, which is sometimes translated rites and rituals, but I think that's a, not a correct translation. And it doesn't mean that an Aryan person gives up all rites and rituals and won't do Bodhi Puja or won't make offerings to the Sangha or won't um, chant suttas or do any meritorious deed. What this means by adherence to rules and observances is clinging to the belief that merely by observing certain rules merely by undertaking certain practices, especially practices of asceticism, one can reach enlightenment or liberation. This was believed very common in the time of the Buddha, especially among the Brahmins. They had their very complex sets of rules which in order to be liberated, one had to light a fire at such and such a time of the day and tend the sacred fire for so many hours, one has to make offerings to Mahabrahma on special auspicious days, one has to, for the people who are the non-Brahmins, they have to contact the Brahmins, order sacrifices on particular occasions, and then there were all of the rules and regulations with a necessary condition for liberation, that is one aspect of adherence to Silabhatta. The other aspect was not so much undertaken by the Brahmins, but by the ascetic followers, who would make vows, for example, to fast for days on end, or vows to sleep on the ground, never on a bed or a mattress vows to remain standing in the posture for days on end. Okay, so those were the types of ascetic practices that the Buddha rejected. And I think we, we shouldn't think that these adherence to rules and observances pertains only to Brahmins and outside ascetics, but also I think we could find them also within amongst Buddhist followers, those who think, okay, in order to be to gain the merit for enlightenment, one has to do bodhi pujas on particular days of the week, 
and one has to go pilgrimage to this place on a particular occasion and one has to make offerings to the Sangha on these particular days and that if one does this that is sufficient and one doesn't have to do anything more. Uh, we find also a very fine example of these attachment and rules and rituals in the Western community who knows about Christianity. There we have the rule of baptism. Mm. And what kind of uh, terror that can be for parents who are attached to these rules when the child is dying before it is baptized that you can imagine. So here you see the, how the rules and attachment to rules and rituals can do very harmful can, can have very harmful effects because yeah. hindrance to progress yeah. whatever the boat is you use. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so the main thing here to be eliminated is the adherence. This is paramasa or upadana, the clinging. But of course, in order to gain liberation, one has to observe sila in the sense of moral rules, moral precepts. And one has to undertake bhakti practices, observances, in the sense of practicing meditation, developing insight. <laughs> These are, in a sense, they are bhaktas, observances or practices, but things one should undertake. But even with regard to these good and important practices, one should not become attached to them and adhere to them with the belief that my particular way of practice is right and the other way of practice is wrong. Okay, maybe we will stop the exposition at this point and then continue next week. And if there's any questions now on anything that came up in the discussion, please feel free to ask them. Any comments to be made, any additional, please feel free to speak. Canker, canker. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before from outside, it's the individual. Before from outside, it's the individual. The anchor gives a wrong, a wrong meaning to it. The word anchor is a wrong meaning. In the list of the word anchor,
Actually, the Sanskrit is Asrava, 
Asrava. I think the idea of canker is just the corruption within the body. I don't know whether it implies it must come from something outside. It could be that the body itself, if there's some far, you know, if there's some foreign material lodged in the body, but still the body produces the corruptive material, the pus and so on itself. Anyway, some translators use canker for for asava. Venerable Nyanamula used pain. Some outflow, some influx, some effluence, some influence, many different choices. Passion, passion, not, I say, not so correct. But you don't speak of ignorance as a passion. I'm not. Yeah. 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 Not good. No, you sure it's asava? Uh, Okay, then we will stop for the evening and continue next Thursday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.